Welcome back to the last week in medicine. Uh, it's July 15th, 2020. I'm Stephen Jenkins, and today I am joined by a friend of the pod and sometimes co host, Dr. Danny Babel. Welcome back, Danny. Thank you, Stephen. Good to be uh, back. Yeah, so um, and uh, speak up a little bit. It's a little quiet on my oh, end. Thank so. you, Stephen. Good to be back. <laughs> that sounds good. So Danny has been uh, spending some time over the last month uh, working down in Shiprock, New Mexico um, on the Navajo Nation. And today we thought we'd take the opportunity to learn more about how things are going down there. And we have a special guest, Dr. Lawanda Jim. Welcome. Yeah, hi there. Thank uh, you for uh, inviting me and having me on. Absolutely, thanks for joining us. I'll, I'll turn the time over to you, Danny, to introduce Dr. Jim and talk more about what you've been doing. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. So just as a little preamble for our listeners, um, the Navajo Nation is an American Indian territory where the, Na the Navajo tribe was relocated to by government decree in 1868. It's roughly the size of West Virginia and covers area in northeastern Arizona, southeastern Utah, and northwestern New Mexico. It's the largest land area retained by an indigenous tribe in the United States with a population of 173,000 or a little over that. The region saw the beginning of its outbreak of COVID-19 mid-March and it promptly enacted stay-at-home orders for its residents. Unfortunately, the number of cases increased rapidly, leading to the region having the highest number of cases per capita than any U.S. state or territory, including New York City, mid-May. At its peak, the Navajo region had an infection rate of 2,300 cases per 100,000 people. Comparatively, Texas right now has an infectious rate, um, Texas being one of the hotbeds currently, of 942 cases per 100,000 people. And Florida um, has a case rate of 1,300 cases per 100,000 people. As of Monday, so this was a couple of days ago, the Navajo, the Navajo Nation reported a total of 88,243 confirmed cases of COVID-19 with 402 related deaths. That's in contrast to 30,478 cases and 226 deaths to date in the state of Utah, where Dr. Jenkins and I live, a state that has 18 times more people. Today, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Lawanda Jim, an internal medicine physician and chair of the internal medicine department at Northern Navajo Medical Center in Shiprock, New Mexico, mm -hmm. talk to us about our experience working on the reservation amidst the outbreak. I just wanted to say how glad we are to have you here. A lot of people across the country, I think they're somewhat aware of what's go been going on in the mm -hmm. Navajo community through the internet, various news yeah. outlets. But mm -hmm. I, I don't think we get enough of a chance to hear from people down there that are actually working on the ground. So we're really glad to have mm -hmm. you here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, first welcome. off, yeah, um, if you don't mind, um, can you just introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about what you do, where you're from, how long you've been practicing at Shiprock? Yeah, yeah. My, well, my, you, you said my, I'm Luanda Jim. Um, I'm an internal medicine physician at Northern Navajo Medical Center, just like you said. Uh, traditionally, we always introduce ourselves um, in Navajo land by our clans and where we live. And so um, I'm gonna go ahead and do that for in case there are any listeners out there who understand Navajo. So um Shay uh 
So those are my four clans. I belong to the Miscalero Apache clan, born for the Leaf clan. Um, my maternal grandfathers are Water Flows Together clan, and my paternal grandfathers are Salt clan. And I grew up in Shiprock, New Mexico, and uh, went to the University of New Mexico for medical school and internal medicine residency, and always with the plan of returning home. Um, I grew up in Shiprock, but my family is originally from the Arizona side of the reservation, um, a, a small, small community, no stores, no gas stations, just a couple of villages, um, and a little community called Bear Springs um, in Black Rock, uh, Arizona. And so uh, I live here in New Mexico, um, about 30 minutes from Shiprock, and work in uh, Shiprock for the last seven and a half years. And so I was a staff physician for six years. And then for the last year and a half, almost two years, I've been chair of the department. Great. Uh, and just for our listeners, how many hospitals are there on the um, uh, Navajo uh, reservation? Yeah, so Navajo Nation is, is like you said, pretty large in terms of uh, its land base. Um, there are uh, hospitals within the Indian Health Service and those include uh, three major hospitals and various clinics. So those hospitals include uh, Northern Navajo Medical Center, Chinle, um, and Gallup Indian Medical Center. And, um, and then there are um, a couple of other hospitals that are not within Indian Health Service, but also service the population, including uh, hospitals in Tuba City and Fort Defiance. Okay, great. And how many people does your hospital in Shiprock Take care. Well, we, yeah, well, so we, our draw area includes patients from uh, southeast Utah, southwest Colorado, Arizona, northwestern Arizona, and sorry, northeast Arizona, and northwestern New Mexico. And so, um, and then, you know, normally we draw on a population of like 55,000 people um, within that area. So we service a good number of people. Uh, not yeah. just New Mexico, not just Navajo Reservation, actually. I mean, primarily Navajo Reservation, but uh, the Four Corners area. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so you are a general internist. Um, in addition to your administrative duties, you have clinic and you do a little mm -hmm. bit of health or inpatient medicine. How, how has your role changed since the outbreak began? Yeah, so... Um, uh, Northern Navajo Medical Center is still pretty unique in the internal medicine world. Um, all of our internal medicine physicians practice traditional internal medicine. So we're half-time inpatient and we're half-time outpatient. And so each of us, in addition to taking call and taking care of patients on the ward, also have a panel of patients that we follow um, within our service area. And so, um, and so that draws a lot of our physicians to that area because um, we are able to really provide comprehensive care to our patients when they get admitted to the hospital. Where the doctors taking care of them and rounding on them, and and um, and so uh, I think that's a big um, positive factor for Northern Navajo Medical Center. And so, in since the pandemic started mid March, when it really hit Navajo, big change happened, in which um, uh, we pretty much. Uh, move towards an inpatient hospitalist model where we still retain some outpatient services, but a lot of us became hospitalists uh, most of the time, taking, you know, 100% of the time taking care of patients who have uh, COVID 
inside the hospital and we went on a, a block schedule um, to help us be able to provide that 24-hour care for all of our patients. And um, our outpatients were really taken care of by several doctors and a nurse practitioner and just catching up on them. And so that was the biggest change in terms of how that's happened from the staffing wise. And then um, as we're now seeing decreasing numbers, um, we're moving towards the, you know, in, um, implementing telemed. We have implemented telemedicine services, but building that capacity. And we also have um, uh, uh, reopened our clinics at a very low level. And so we're, you know, making sure we're taking every precaution to protect the patient, to protect the staff, um, but also, you know, ensuring that we also provide care uh, for our um, continuity patients. Since you had to shift so much of your focus to inpatient medicine, do you guys feel like there were, you know, some outpatient problems that were a lot harder to deal with, like patients that weren't able to get like the, the care they needed at the time they needed it? Or do you feel like overall you guys were able to manage the outpatient stuff okay during the surge? Well, I think what really helped us out um, be able to address uh, any outpatient concerns was having several physicians re really cover our highest risk patients. So there was a high risk clinic okay. that one of our doctors um, uh, uh, had once a week and she had uh, two or three, two, two physicians and then a nurse practitioner really help her out. And so we were going through and identifying who are our highest risk patients. And so there was a clinic available, our walk-in was available. So we did take some efforts to try and target the highest risk patients. But I think in situations like that, you know, you always, you always, you always are concerned about patients who may not be coming for care. And so we implemented the telemedicine service back in early April, where we started calling patients on our outpatient panel and providing those services to them. Mm -hmm. um, in telephone services. And then there were situations where you needed to bring them in and you let them know that the hospital was still open and providing care for them. Yeah, I think a, a lot of hospitals across the country have had very fluid models of patient management since this all began. And there's a lot of changing and trying to figure out how to serve our patients um, with everything going on. Um, so yeah. I, I mean, I think there you're, you're always worried about the patient with, you know, for example, and a patient with cirrhosis yeah. who may not be taking diuretics as needed and they come in fluid overloaded mm -hmm. and they need admission for that reason because they thought the pharmacy was closed or, um, mm -hmm. you know, they couldn't make it to the hospital due to tra um, transportation um, uh, issues. And so, uh, so, so, you know, there are definitely those, those um, concerns. And, and so I think that was, I, you know, realizing that I think that was one of the kind of the big pushes once we started seeing our numbers come down, at least at our facility, to really get back out there and provide um, uh, care for our patients. So at the, the point where we are now, you know, part of um, our strategy and my strategy was to really bolster our hospitalist care. So our internal medicine physicians could provide that outpatient care, reach out to their patients, actively reach out to their patients and, and, and um, provide that care again. Yeah, I, I was sort of, um, uh, it was kind of cool to see how uh, providers of other specialties or other disciplines 
were helping out with the with the pandemic as well. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you know, we we um, uh, we you know there are <coughs> everyone. Uh, what I can say about working at Northern Navajo Medical Center is, I mean, I work with an awesome group of physicians, healthcare workers, medical staff, and an executive team where everyone came together and really stepped up to, to coordinate, to implement different care plans, flow plans for the hospital. Um, and everyone just, you know, really stepped up and said, what can I do? How can I help? And so in addition to our rheumatologists chipping in and helping us out on the inpatient wards, I mean, he was, I mean, he, he, um, uh, we also had a number of other staff really stepping up to the plate saying, where can I help? You know, how do we need to modify our inpatient bed units and how do we need to improve the flow uh, all the meanwhile we're minding safety. And so our hospital staff actually were part and parcel to that implementation and that change at our hospital. And so, um, and also in addition to outpatient you know, care, um, how we uh, develop or implemented the CAR triage system, you know, the family medicine department. So the whole hospital, I think, really came together. Um, a lot of different departments came together to really, to really shore up the care for um, all of our patients, COVID and non-COVID. Yeah, you, you, you had um, people helping out and calling families, because mm -hmm. um, you know, as is the case for many hospitals still in the country, a no visitor policy. So that was mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're helping out with calling families to update them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. So how, how did the landscape of your hospital census change during the outbreak? And what are, what are some of the, the challenges that you guys faced? Um, uh, and sort of how did you surmount those challenges? And so um, in terms of our census, you know, the big shift again was to providing COVID care. Um, what, uh, when we saw the increase in the number of the inpatients, I'm, you know, I'm not focusing so much on the outpatient, but inpatient care, we saw that ri the rise in the numbers of inpatients um, with our first case presenting mid-March, like you said, and peaking around mid-May. And then now we're seeing a decrease. And so... Um, and so once we, once we implemented that change, or once we started seeing those numbers, we were able to expand our inpatient services or coordinate our inpatient services to provide that care. So at one point, you know, we were definitely having a lot more COVID inpatients than non-COVID inpatients um, mm -hmm. on our services. Um, you know, on some days you might see five, five or six patients uh, in the hospital for non COVID-related um, illnesses, whereas we saw anywhere from 20 to 29 inpatients who were who had COVID positive. So, 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 so as we saw the peak, we saw greater numbers of COVID patients or patients with diagnosed with COVID, and then we saw uh, the decrease, um, and then kind of that that change. So now we're seeing more inpatients who are admitted for other medical reasons. Yeah. Um, how how was your guys's PPE situation 
And has um, that been also kind of a constantly adapting process? Well, uh, the incident command, sir, uh, the incident command uh, system, the group who really came together, there was a PPE stewardship committee that was started right around the time we started to have our first cases. And they, you know, do, and so um, our hospital and the committee really came together to make sure that we had enough PPE for the staff, um, for the medical staff, um, and really, you know, took efforts to do that. We also were um, beneficiaries of a lot, you know, a lot of donation to the hospital, which we're really thankful of. Um, thankful for and so a lot of us um, so we were able to safely go onto the wards in full PPE and I don't think that was um, and I think that was part and part you know with because of the stewardship committee making sure and um, that you know we had they had a good sense of how many masks did we have how many nitrile gloves did we have what was our burn rate what what kind of gowns would be most effective, you know, what kind of gowns would be the best types of gowns for us to use um, and so forth. And so I think having a group of uh, physicians come together on that committee really, um, you, know, made, you know, it really helped, it, it helped us in terms of making sure that our staff was protected. Gotcha. Uh, kind of, oh, I was gonna ask, uh, did you guys mostly, have you been using N95s or do you have like the pappers or like regular surgical masks? What have been kind of the standard PPE that you've been using? Yeah, so we use the standard PPE um, at, at, the, at the hospital. So if I'm going on to the COVID ward or into a room with a COVID a patient diagnosed with, I mean, I'm, I'm wearing an N95 mask. Yeah. Um, everyone is fit tested. I'm wearing a surgical mask over that. I have a uh -huh. face shield or, you know, safety goggles yeah. um, in place. I have a, a gown. Um, <clears throat> uh, that we have, we, we, we pretty much ran out of disposable gowns right away. So we have reusable gowns that can mm -hmm. be um, laundered and reused. And so that really That's helped good. us out. And then we had gloves, you know, our gloves. So we definitely have the full PPE available to us yeah. um, when we go into the room. But of course, you know, we always want to make sure that we, um, we continue to sustain the numbers that we have going, right. you know, going forward. Yeah, it seemed like early on there was kind of it was really hard to get enough N95s around the country, and and our our mm -hmm. hospital I think we have a you know a bank of N95s, but we really haven't been using them that much, um, mm -hmm. and and so yeah, I think that's that's good. You guys have been able to mm -hmm. have enough stock on that stuff. Have you guys? Um, was there any like standard approach to treating COVID? Was it mostly supplemental care? Were you guys doing any? you know, experimental treatments, any research stuff. Um, a lot of hospitals have tried, like, you know, hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, all sorts of different things. Like, was there mm -hmm. anything that you guys were doing on a regular basis? Yeah, so we work a lot in collaboration with uh, a couple of hospitals that um, uh, we have had a partnership with in the past, including Brigham and Women, and have just really kind of looked at guidelines across the board, um, including other hospitals. Um, about COVID care um, and reaching out to partners at that hospital and other hospitals as well to ensure the care that we have to make sure we have the most up-to-date care right. available for our patients. We are no, we don't use hydroxychloroquine at this yeah. point in time. 
Um, and we do have, <laughs> yeah. And so, and so um, we have, uh, you know, other, we, we don't have any ongoing trials. We're just a pretty yeah. small rural hospital, sure. um, but we are able to, we are offering, you know, of course, uh, cons- you know, the usual care for our patients, you know, supplemental oxygen, right. um, et cetera. But we also have uh, dexamethasone has been implemented at our hospital Great. as well as um, we also have the availability of remdesivir. Oh, nice. Yeah, I was going to ask about remdesivir because mm-hmm. I know like, you know, we've been giving it in our hospital, but they're giving us like, you know, kind of having to ration it because there's not enough to go around. And so that's great that you guys have been able to get your hands on some of that too, because mm-hmm. yeah, but we're we're also big fans of dexamethasone now. Using, yeah, using yeah. And so I think the thing that we, we definitely try to make sure of is we, we you know, what are the guidelines? What are the studies saying? But yeah. what are our partners doing and making sure that we're providing that for our patients? That's awesome. Yeah, as we all know, a lot of these patients become critically ill. Um, they get intubated. How, how, um, how often were you guys having to transfer out those patients to tertiary care centers? And was that, how was that process for you? Um, well, you know, it, it really came, we did a lot of, we did more transferring when we definitely were at the peak in terms of in, in transferring to tertiary care centers. Yeah. And so early on in consultation with our pulmonologist who's on staff, um, uh, we discussed, you know, strategies with him. He, and so based on those discussions, we decided that to provide the best care for those patients, we would, anyone who got intubated, got transferred to a tertiary care center. Mm -hmm. And so in mid-May, when we saw the peak in our inpatient numbers, and again, this is not Navajo Nationwide, but our inpatient numbers peaked at um, mid-May at our hospital. That's the time frame that, you know, we definitely saw uh, several uh, transfers a day um, to to, uh, hospitals in Albuquerque primarily. and so, and as the numbers decreased, inpatient numbers decreased, we're seeing very few transfers at all. Um, but we are still electing, and, it, and it, you know, I think um, partly we are fortunate that our numbers have come down, whereas, you know, um, and so uh, we, we're eager to see what will happen in cases where, you know, we, we, we've developed plans, you know, about what, um, what would we do if those larger hospitals fill up, you know, like in cases like in Maricopa County, Southern Texas, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I think that's always a challenging um, a proposition to, to, to take into account. But right now we're still um, able to transfer patients out who are intubated. Why do you think that the, the Navajo community, it's a region uh, with very low population density, had such a high case rate? Um, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of it, ha- from, from what I gather, uh, having grown up in, uh, here in the community and just the, there's extended family is huge. I mean, it's big on Navajo. Um, uh, you know, there's really, you know, everyone, um, and there are multi-generational homes. So they're oftentimes where, 
Um, you will have grandparents living with their children, living with their grandchildren, mm -hmm. um, taking care of the grandchildren while the parents are out working, off the reservation, coming home at night. Mm -hmm. And so you see this, this kind of uh, clustering effect. And so, you know, um, I've had patients that said, you know, we were taking all the precautions, but you know, it's it 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 came home to us. A yeah. family member bought it home, and so uh, so I think that part had a lot to do with it, especially in our area. And so that um, so that in part contributed to us looking at families as opposed to just individuals, you know, persons under investigations. Mm -hmm. um, a physician epidemiologist, Dr. Went at our facility. Um, propose the idea of families under investigations because what we were seeing from early on were cases of, of cases clustered in families mm -hmm. and so um, so then the determination made then then we just looked at those and then the decision at that point was like well we're going to test family members now patients who test positive for COVID mm -hmm. as opposed to just waiting for symptoms to appear Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, so I think that in large part, you know, you also have, and then the question is, why are there so many folks that live in one generation outside of culture and cultural reasons? You know, there's lack of housing mm -hmm. um, on the reservation. It's hard for someone to get their own house and to have that house and live in it. And so, um, so I think there are basic infrastructural questions, you know, th reasons why that had also happened. Um, but I really, um, want to give a you know uh, I really want to applaud the effort of people the people on on Navajo Nation for really heeding the precautions um, yeah. early on you know it it was something that was you know really a foreign thing like this virus is outside our four sacred mountains we're not going to be harmed by it mm -hmm. we're you know and then it arrived and then it was an adjustment and then I was like, oh, well, we're going to take precautions. And so families really decided to stay home and really, you know, decided to to take the precautions that were recommended. And so um, and uh, and uh, so I really applaud Navajo Nation, the Dine people for taking those precautions. And I think because they took that effort and and took that responsibility, we're seeing that as the decrease in numbers. Yeah, that's that's awesome. I I could definitely tell people were taking it very seriously there. Um, yeah, and, we were doing better in Utah. It seems like people here like still don't get it. You know, yeah. you go out in the community and like hardly anyone's wearing masks, and people are just acting like it's just business as usual. And I think we still have a high price to pay here, probably, um, as we see our rates continue to go up. So, mm -hmm. no, it's. That's, that's fortunate people were able to take it seriously early on. And yeah, and then that's, you know, that that's the thing, you know, I, like I said, we are reaching out to patients via our telemedicine visits and the response I'm getting is, Dr. Jim, I am staying home. I am not going anywhere. I am staying home. I'm not doing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch out for myself and for my family. Yeah. Maybe some of our listeners don't know, but there's, you know, a much higher percentage of residents on the on the Navajo Nation um, without running water or electricity. It's like 30% without water, 30% without electricity. That's somewhere around, you know, 1% for the entire population. Mm -hmm. um, 
Are there, are there unique challenges to discharging a COVID positive patient to a home without electricity or running water? Oh, for sure. I think because there, there's, the, there, there's number one, um, it's, you know, where are they going? I don't know so much about, well, electricity and water, yes. And so where would we go? So different efforts that we've taken, you know, we've had patients complete their quarantine while they're, you know, their 10 to 14 day quarantine or self-isolation in the hospital as they recover um, from their uh, symptoms or their, and then um, unfortunately, unfortunately there have been um, uh, local partners off the reservation in a community um, where there are hotel rooms available uh, for patients to get discharged to if they don't have, either they, you know, for several reasons, if they need to self-isolate because um, their home is just not large enough and they can't self-isolate at home mm-hmm. or um, in cases where there's no running water electricity. So that opportunity is available to us for, for um, uh, that I just was able to help us out with. That's great. Um, I've uh, I've had the opportunity to take care of a, a few um, patients from kind of the Blanding, Utah area. And so I guess what um, would you give any advice, um, like what cultural information people should be aware of when taking care of, of people from the Navajo Nation, anything we should know? Uh, I think uh, the, you know, despite everything i think dinette people and navajo people have experienced or gone through the limitations the challenges there's definitely a sense of resilience Mm -hmm. in our population um in that is uh is is based kind of you know on our cultural history our stories where we come from how we've survived how we're thriving and how we're going to get through this. And so one of the things that our patient, you know, when I, when I try and pay attention to my patients is, well, yes, I'm dealing with the physical symptoms of COVID, you know, the shortness of breath, the, the, the cough, the fever and so forth and so on as they improve. And, and, um, but I also want to pay, you know, be mindful of who they are as a, as, as a whole person, you know, mentally, emotionally, where are they in, in, in dealing with this illness that they had been diagnosed with? How are they making sense of it? for themselves? How are they making sense of it for their families? How are they making sense of it for Navajo people? Not that maybe, you know, we don't address the, the Navajo way, but especially for them and for their families. How, 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 are they, how are they being mindful of that? And so in addition to providing inpatient services, medical care for them, making sure that we offer that other resource for them is that, you know, make sure that you have family support, mm-hmm. getting support from, from um, our, what we call our ENA counseling center, which is like the Lifeway Counseling Center, which is our mental health center at our hospital and reaching out and making sure that they have that opportunity to discuss th- how they feel with this illness. I, you know, there's, there can be increased, I, um, among my patient population, there's this increasing level of anxiety, like how, how am I going to protect my family? How am I going to protect myself? And making sure that we address that as well, as mm-hmm. opposed to just, just, um, uh, just uh, the illness itself. And, um, and so uh, I think that's, that's 
culturally, you know, that's what I understand of my patients um, and ensuring that they're healthy on, on, on the multiple levels and trying to help them out. Oh, thank you very much for sharing that. I think um, we are running a little short on time. So uh, Danny or Dr. Jim, was there anything else that you guys wanted to share before we go? I was just kind of wondering, um, you know, you guys luckily have have seen your peak or at least this first peak and it's it's getting better. What what lessons have you learned from the pandemic? Um, and, and sort of what advice would you give for other communities that are sort of experiencing their surge and how mm -hmm. much you prepare for the next one? Mm -hmm. um, I think the key things, at least for inside the hospital and also from the hospital to the community is communication and how the teams in the hospital communicate with one another, how they, you know, um, communication, um, and updates for the staff and for the nursing staff and making, you know, having our staff feel like they're a part of the solution in developing these treatment plans and, and that they feel like they, they really have ownership of this. And so I think our hospital has done a pretty good job of that. And as we're learning and moving forward, but also communicating what services are available to, um, to the community you know, ensuring that the community understands not only the, what the, the precautions the CDC recommends, but the community knows the pharmacy hours, the community knows the walk-in clinics are still open, the community knows the emergency room is open, um, mm -hmm. and uh, the community knows that we're, um, uh, you know, where they can go for testing. So I think communication has is definitely key. Um, now and going forward and, and uh, making sure of that and then learning new ways to communicate the precautions to our community I think is going to is, is always a challenge but also you know continuing on that front to encouraging them to continue taking the precautions. Mm -hmm. Well thanks so much for joining us today Dr. Jim and for all the amazing work you're doing in Shiprock mm -hmm. and we'll hope and pray things continue to get better there. It sounds like cases are starting to come down and Hopefully we can learn from, from what you guys have done as we deal with the surge on our, in our hospital. But mm -hmm. thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, that's all we have for this week. Thanks for joining us. We will hopefully be back soon to talk about the latest and greatest updates in medicine. See ya.